Nuclear Hot Seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called experts get it wrong. Nuclear trash will be with us forever. And no, I'm not just talking about Shinzo Abe. I'm talking about the other stuff with the half-life of mostly forever. So what are we supposed to do with it? What can be done? And what do we do now? Well, to do his best at answering those questions, my guest this week is Kevin Camps, nuclear waste watchdog, some might say bulldog, for Beyond Nuclear. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Plus, we've got the numbnuts of the week Activist shout-outs, Radcast, the radiation readings will be with us again this week, and much more, so stay tuned. Today is Tuesday, December 3rd, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. We start out in Japan this week, where all eyes are on the master stroke of political gamesmanship, the Japanese State Secrets Act. It's so compelling, it may have even helped us take our eyes off TEPCO and Fukushima for a while. This controversial bill calls for tougher penalties on government officials and others, meaning the general public as well, who leak official state secrets. However, it leaves the designation of what constitutes a state secret to top officials of government agencies and ministries. Opposition parties are taking a firm stand against the proposed legislation, citing concerns about arbitrary designation of state secrets and infringement on the public's right to know. But as many have come to realize, it's all about shielding TEPCO and Fukushima from any further examination and making certain the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo go off without a hitch and without the slightest worry about radioactive contamination. The public and the media in Japan seem to be dead set against the Secrecy Act. A survey from Asahi Shimbun showed that voters opposed the state secrets protection bill, outnumbering its proponents two to one. At the same time, the Abe cabinet's support rate has dipped below 50% for the first time. 61% of all respondents said that they object to the way the ruling coalition, which controls both chambers of the Diet, the Japanese parliament, steamrolled the bill through the lower house on November 26th. The growing protests over the bill appear to have further chipped away at the once high popularity levels of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe baby. Newspapers across Japan took aim at the secrecy bill, most of them saying that parliamentary debate was insufficient and slamming the legislation for restricting the right to know. The Ahime Shimbun said, It is tantamount to abandoning being accountable to the nation. The Okinawa Times said, 
It was an act of betrayal of the people of Fukushima. Among the most common objections to the bill was that information may be kept classified for up to 60 years and that lawmakers have failed to incorporate a pledge to establish a third-party organ to oversee the procedures for designating secrets. The Kumamoto Nichi Nichi Shimbun said, What is conspicuous is a lack of perspective that all information is the common asset of citizens. The Nishi Nippon Shimbun in Fukua Prefecture expressed uneasiness about prioritizing secrecy without securing measures to ensure information disclosure. They wrote, Would it not lead to eradicating the spirit of democratic society in Japan built on personal freedom of activity and speech? The Shinano Manichi Shimbun in Nagano Prefecture has called the act a suicide act by the Diet. Koichi Shimbun blasted the bill in a special commentary by its chief editor on the front page. It said, History teaches us what kind of path was taken by a secretive society that suppresses speech through severe punishments, that of a surveillance society or a police state. The ruling bloc wants to pass it for enactment before the end of the current parliamentary session on December 6. According to Japan-based investigative journalist Jake Edelstein, even politicians inside the ruling bloc are saying it can't be denied that another purpose is to muzzle the press, shut up whistleblowers, and ensure that the nuclear disaster at Fukushima ceases to be an embarrassment before the Olympics. Most tellingly, Masako Mori, the Minister of Justice, has declared that nuclear-related information will most likely be a designated secret. Edelstein wrote, There seems to be no end to stopping the toxic waste leaks there, but the new legislation would allow the administration to plug the information leaks permanently. As it continues to pour into the ocean and our food supply, It is an ominous sign that the Japanese government refuses to disclose information about the levels of radioactive pollution. Under the bill, ordinary citizens who aid and abet or conspire with others in leaking information classified as special state secrets could face up to five years in prison, even if the information were not actually revealed. One Fukushima resident angrily said, How far are they going to go in fooling us? A member of the Diet's Investigative Committee on Fukushima Nuclear Disaster said, I hope information involving the lives of residents will not be made secret. To which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, Don't go holding your breath. The publication Bologna went down the list of what's wrong at Fukushima and then said, It is understandable that Abe would like to stuff a sock in the bad news. Citizens opposing the government-sponsored bill held a candlelight rally in Tokyo on Monday evening, December 2nd. A group of lawyers, journalists, and others held 50 candles and 500 light sticks outside the Diet Building. Organizers say about 1,300 people took part. So how is Japan's ruling Labor Democratic Party responding to the criticism? They used one of their heavyweights to compare protesters to terrorists. Shigeru Ishiba, a former defense minister and the ruling Liberal Democratic Party's number two man, compared the loud protests against the bill to acts of terrorism, this in a bill that he posted on Friday.
He wrote, Outside the Diet office building, they're screaming, Must block designated secret spill at full blast. I don't know where they're coming from, but regardless of their political leaning, merely shouting their slogan and disturbing people's peace and calm will never gain the public's sympathy. Right like you'd know. He went on in a paternal manner. In order to advance your ideas and principles, what you need is to increase sympathizers through democratic means and spread your support base. How can they communicate if the truth is prevented by State Secrets Act? Ishiba went on, A simple screaming strategy is fundamentally not much different from terrorist tactics. Well, maybe they're screaming because you're not listening. So, what kind of secrets are we soon not going to legally be able to know? Well, on Monday, December 2nd, TEPCO admitted that radiation levels at Fukushima had hit a new all-time high radiation level. Woohoo! Congratulations, guys. Well done. A well at Fukushima that is only 40 meters, 43 yards from the Pacific Ocean, registered 1.1 billion becquerels per liter of water. That's 36,000 times the permissible level in underground water. If TEPCO had been allowed to keep that particular fact secret, what do you think? Would they? Here's a further roundup of bad news around Fukushima. Arjun Makajani, nuclear expert and president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, said, Groundwater is contacting the molten fuel and becoming extremely contaminated. The fuel, which is underneath reactors 1, 2, and 3, is molten, and the bottom of the reactor building is undoubtedly damaged. So that's why the groundwater flowing past the trenches and pipes and past the basement of the reactor building is getting into the reactor building where the molten fuel is. It may also be that the molten fuel is in the cracks of the foundation. According to the Associated Press, the turbine buildings at the Fukushima Daiichi plant are about 150 meters, 500 feet, from the ocean. According to a Japan Atomic Energy Agency document, the contaminated underground water is spreading towards the sea at a rate of about 4 meters, 13 feet, a month. At that rate, according to Atsunao Marei, an underground water expert, the water from that area is just about to reach the coast if it hasn't already. Now we learn that strontium-90 levels stay near zero for the first 1,000 days after an accident, after which levels spike dramatically and appear to remain elevated for the next 50,000 or so days. That's just shy of 137 years. Marine chemist and biologist Ken Busler from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute said, if some of the other isotopes, such as strontium-90, get through these sediments into the groundwater, they are entering the oceans at levels that will accumulate in seafood and will cause new health concerns. Any contamination in the groundwater would eventually flow into the ocean. That is very difficult to stop, even with barriers. Busler's research suggests that contaminated water from the reactor turbine areas is already leaking into the sea. Last week on Nuclear Hot Seat, 
we reported that former Nuclear Regulatory Commissioner Dale Klein, who is now benefiting from the nuclear industry's revolving door by working as an advisor to TEPCO, said on behalf of his bosses, when the water is discharged, it will be released in a way that it's diluted, so there's no risk to public health and safety. It's an emotional issue. Well, Ernie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education didn't get emotional about it. That's my job. But in an interview that he gave to the Real News Network on December 1st, he said, Dale Klein is now suggesting that we're just going to have to take Fukushima's radioactive water and pump it into the Pacific. And I don't think that's a very good idea. It's cheap, and it's fast. It's the expedient way of doing it. But really, there's something called the London Dumping Convention. Back in 1972, Greenpeace was very active in preventing radiation from being dumped into the ocean. And to my way of thinking, this would violate the London Dumping Convention if they did it. The only problem with that interpretation, Arnie, the International Maritime Organization has prohibited ocean dumping of radioactive material since 1996. But TEPCO through Fukushima, is not dumping it from something in the ocean into the ocean. They're on solid land, or semi-solid land. It's so wet these days. And certainly TEPCO and the regime of Prime Minister Abe Baby are diving right through the middle of that loophole. As to facing some of the more difficult projections about the level of radiation that's out in the world, Hiroki Koide, a nuclear reactor specialist and assistant professor at Kyoto University Research Reactor Institute, said, There is a law that says that when transporting radioactive material, it is illegal to transport any material which has a greater dose than 40,000 becquerels per square meter. If that law were to be followed, then the amount of square kilometers that need to be evacuated is approximately 20,000 kilometers. In other words... 20,000 square kilometers should be completely devoid of people. Dr. Charles Perrault, Professor Emeritus at Yale University and author of the award-winning book Normal Accidents, Living with High-Risk Technologies, said, It is still emitting radioactive materials to the atmosphere. It's going to keep emitting that for a thousand years or so. When asked, are we literally on the verge of seeing Japan ceasing to exist as a nation? Dr. Perot replied, If we have a serious accident or a serious earthquake, yes, there is a high risk. And the Korea Times has been lashing out at Japan because South Korea is not pleased with what its neighbor has been up to at Fukushima. Kim Ik Jung a biology professor from Dongguk University in South Korea said that radiation at the Fukushima nuclear power plant was at least seven times as much as that in Chernobyl. He said, It's true that about 70%, 70% of Japan's territory is polluted, and about 20% of Japanese land, including Tokyo, is contaminated with highly toxic radiation. Tell that to the International Olympic Committee. Then there's this little tidbit from our friend Iori Mochizuki and Fukushima Diary, the blog that he writes. 
He said, as regards debris in Fukushima's spent fuel pools, TEPCO dropped the monitoring camera into spent fuel pool 3, this according to TEPCO, in order to remove large-sized debris from spent fuel pool of reactor 3, TEPCO was using monitoring cameras on November 28th when the Yakuza-conscripted, press-ganged, underpaid workers lifted one of the cameras. The wire was cut off, and the camera dropped into the pool. This camera weighed 5.5 kilograms, or approximately 12 pounds. I know if someone dropped the equivalent of two five-pound bags of flour and two one-pound bags of sugar on my feet, it would sure hurt. Wonder what it did to the fuel rods. We may never get to find out. Remember, under the upcoming Japan State Secrecy Protection of Its Ass Act, none of these previous stories would have been available legally to nuclear hot seat. I guess I'm not going to Japan anytime soon. (laughs) But that was a given. Which brings us to this story, which the government would clearly want to be reported, which is why it qualifies as this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None That's Out of Week. The J Village facility near Tokyo Electric Power Company's crippled Fukushima Number 1 nuclear power plant will be used once again as a soccer training center possibly as early as 2018. This, according to a TEPCO spokesmodel. TEPCO, Fukushima Prefecture, and the Japan Football Association have started talks to restore the original function of J-Village for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. After all, J-Village has 12 soccer pitches and a hotel and has been used as a training campsite for the Japanese national soccer teams. But... TEPCO has been using the facility as a base for workers at the plant since the nuclear crisis started in March of 2011. Now, TEPCO has decided to transfer the plant worker base elsewhere because Japan and Tokyo won its bid to host the 2020 Olympics. A training facility for elite Olympic athletes in the radiation zone. And don't forget that hotel for their guests. And you don't have to bring your own nightlights because the whole place glows in the dark. Training elite athletes in a radiation zone. Nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. There's another story out of Japan that's too long to go into right now. It's about how Japan's industry ministry came up with a confidential internal document titled towards the renaissance of nuclear energy, and they put it together in late March of 2011, meaning this was the think tank plan to counter anything negative and anti-nuclear that might come about as a result of the ongoing horrific disaster that was just unfolding at Fukushima. We'll have a link to this article up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under program number 128. Pro-nuclear forces may be covering their posterior in Japan and the United States, 
But international economic factors continue to hammer away at the industry. The World Bank and the United Nations on Wednesday, November 27, appealed for billions of dollars to provide electricity for the poorest nations, but said there would be no investment in nuclear power. Woohoo! World Bank President Jim Yong Kim said, We don't do nuclear energy. I just love that. That's my quote of the week. He continued, The World Bank Group does not engage in providing support for nuclear power. Our focus is on finding ways of working in hydroelectric power, in geothermal, in solar, in wind. Then on Monday, December 2nd, Norwegian investment fund KLP sold its shares in TEPCO, the operator of Fukushima, saying that they did so because of its handling of the disaster. KLP sold all its 8 million crowns worth of shares in TEPCO in recent weeks, it said on Monday. That represents $1.3 million in investment. Fukushima is the reason, said Heidi Finskus, an advisor for responsible investments at KLP, which is a life insurance company. She said, it's not the accident itself, but it is the evaluation of the whole situation, both with the risk assessment before the accident and due to the current situation. Almost three years have passed, and the situation is still not under control, and there is still a risk for further radioactive pollution at Fukushima. A TEPCO spokesmodel was not immediately available to comment. Perhaps they put a sock in it? Japan and India have moved closer to a nuclear deal, where India will actually buy its nuclear technology from the country that continues to bring you Fukushima. Just missed being numbnuts of the week. To symbolize this ill-conceived deal with the devil, Hindu External Affairs Minister Stalman Kershid presented a bust of Mahatma Gandhi to Japanese Emperor Akahito. Gandhi must be turning over in his grave if he hasn't reincarnated already. Chernobyl is getting a new containment structure. Back when Chernobyl was still the worst nuclear accident in the world, meaning before Fukushima beat it out for first place, nearly a quarter of a million construction workers risked their lives to build an ad hoc sarcophagus of concrete around the stricken reactor. It was only a stopgap measure, and now, nearly 30 years later, it needs to be reinforced and protected. Now a $2 billion project is underway to protect the decaying metal sarcophagus. It is a massive steel archway tall enough to house the Statue of Liberty and wide enough to accommodate a soccer field. The project has a targeted completion date of 2015, so let's hope that nothing happens between now and then. Workers can only spend a few hours at the reactor site before they reach the maximum radioactive exposure limit, and work is thus progressing at a snail's pace. Despite the incredible lengths and expense required to build the structure, it is still only a band-aid. It is designed to last for roughly 100 years, 
But this is a problem that is not going to go away for tens of thousands of years, and scientists still don't know how to solve the problem of radioactive contamination from nuclear waste. Now, think of what they're going through to protect one reactor and multiply that times four should they ever get around to instituting a solution like this at Fukushima. We should all live so long. We have reports that up to five million seabirds are likely to have died on Australian and New Zealand beaches. And, of course, scientists haven't a clue as to why this is happening, and none of them can spell Fukushima. Now it's time for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission duck and cover report. It's been a busy week for problems at U.S. nuclear plants. Hope Creek Nuclear Power Plant in New Jersey had an automatic reactor scram due to a main turbine trip. Whoops! Tripped again. Dresden in Illinois had a high-pressure coolant injection system surveillance test failure. For the second time this year, inspectors at the Duke Energy Shearson-Harris nuclear power plant near Raleigh, North Carolina, have found a flaw in the reactor vessel. In May, the facility was shut down after an inspection revealed early signs of corrosion and cracking in the reactor vessel. Officials with the NRC told reporters that at some point, utilities have to consider replacing the entire vessel head when cracks keep showing up. And in a truly Homer Simpson event, an employee supervisor at the Nine Mile Point nuclear power plant near Oswego, New York, tested positive for alcohol during a fitness-for-duty test. Fitness-for-duty tests are administered either randomly or for cause, as this one was, after supervisors note aberrant behaviors and order follow-up testing. Aberrant behaviors cover a wide range of actions, from staggering, to acting belligerently or out of character, to making simple mistakes, such as turning on the wrong switch. As a result of being found drunk on the job, the licensee terminated the employee's unescorted access privileges. I guess that means if he brings a drinking buddy, he's good to go. And that's this week's Nuclear Regulatory Commission Doc and Cover Report. Let's get to the interview. Beyond Nuclear's Kevin Camps specializes in high-level waste management and transportation, as well as new and existing reactors, decommissioning, Congress Watch, climate change, and federal subsidies. He's Tom Hartman's favorite nuclear commentator, too, and one of our best spokespeople. Kevin Camps, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks so much for having me. We're dealing with nuclear waste, so let's talk trash nuclear trash. Give us a grounding from your perspective as radioactive watchdog for beyond nuclear. What is the nature and the enormity of the problem that we are facing? We have a mountain of radioactive waste that's now 70 years tall. It is uh, first started with the Manhattan Project in World War II, the race to develop the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. So Enrico Fermi first split the atom with the first reactor at the University of Chicago, December 2nd of 1942. So we're 70 years into the atomic age. 
starting in 1957, you had the first commercial atomic reactor in the United States. So now we're some 56 years into commercial nuclear power, and the quantity of commercial high-level radioactive waste is now over 70,000 metric tons, and that grows by 2,000 metric tons per year. So in a really crazy sense, we are back to square one because in 1957, the federal government took the first steps towards assuming this responsibility for the nuclear power industry. The industry would have never started had not the federal government taken this responsibility on. And then that became more locked in in 1983 with the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. But with the cancellation of the Yucca Dump, we are back to square one. We do not have a deep geologic repository. And so we're facing all kinds of crazy ideas right now. Let's take this back a little bit because you said back in 57 the U.S. government took on responsibility. Can you give us a clearer picture of exactly what that consisted of? There were two big promises made in 1957 by the U.S. federal government. The first one had to do with liability coverage in the event of a catastrophic accident. That was the Price-Anderson Act, which capped the industry's liability at reactor disasters. But the second big promise was, you know, we will take care of the waste in the end. This is the high-level radioactive waste. And so the National Academy of Science in 1957 did the first study on what could be done with high-level radioactive waste. It took decades longer until that promise of 1957 was enacted into law, and that law was the Nuclear Waste Policy Act of 1983, which has been amended a number of times. 1987 singled out Yucca Mountain. 1992 further really deregulated the dump because it could not live up to regulations and requirements. And uh, most recently, the Obama administration canceled the Yucca dump. So we're back to square one. Uh, 1957, we don't know what to do with our mountain of radioactive waste. What are the possibilities? There's a lot of bad ideas being thrown around. Let's start with the bad ideas. Okay. There is a Senate bill. It's S-1240-1240. It's uh, proposed by four senators, Wyden of Oregon, Murkowski of Alaska, Feinstein of California, and Alexander of Tennessee. So two Democrats, two Republicans. And their top priority as a huge favor to the nuclear power industry would be to get the high-level radioactive waste rolling away from the nuclear power plant sites. They want to open what they're calling a consolidated interim storage facility by the year 2021, which is hyper-warp speed in, in these issues. They would put the waste onto the roads and or rails and or waterways of this country, which is very risky. We call it mobile Chernobyl or Fukushima's on the freeways or floating Fukushima's, dirty bombs on wheels, and move it to places like Native American reservations, Department of Energy sites, or nuclear power plants for that matter, centralize it there, and you know the chances are those would become permanent parking lot dumps for the waste. And then as an afterthought, they mentioned that, well, by 2048, we could probably open a deep geologic repository where to permanently dump the waste. And where are they proposing that this actually take place? There are some uh, very distinct targets. There's the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in New Mexico. There's Idaho National Laboratory. There's Savannah River Site, South Carolina. Those are the DOE sites with the strongest booster groups, unfortunately. Among the Native American reservations, it's anybody's guess, but the Skull Valley Go Shoots in Utah 
actually there was a license granted by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for a parking lot dump for 40,000 metric tons of high-level radioactive waste there. And by no small miracle, that was stopped thanks to a coalition of hundreds of environmental and environmental justice groups across the country. And when was that dumped? Well, it was uh, December 20th of 2012, so just under a year ago now, the company called Private Fuel Storage Limited Liability Corporation pulled the plug on the dump, even though they had a license to go forward from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Ideas about putting more waste where there's already waste, maybe contaminating land where it hasn't been there, and oh, by the way, it's going to have to go by roads, by rail, uh, perhaps even by barge. I know you mentioned that in, in some of your materials to me. What other ideas are there for handling this massive amount of toxic nuclear waste? Well, it's coming out at all of these nuclear waste confidence meetings across the country. The public is saying to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to the federal government, to the nuclear power industry, you need to stop making radioactive waste. That's the only real solution to this problem is stop making it. But for the 70,000 metric tons of high-level radioactive waste on the commercial side that already exist, we, we can't undo that. It already exists. The consensus among hundreds of environmental groups in all 50 states is a idea called hardened on-site storage. The phrase was coined by Dr. Arjun Makajani, and it calls for emptying the pools, which are at very high risk of a drain down of the cooling water and a catastrophic fire. So getting the waste out of the pools and putting it into a dry cask storage technology, but one that is significantly upgraded in terms of safety and security and environmental protection over current practices, which are themselves very risky. How good an idea is this in your estimation? Hardened on-site storage? It's the best of a very long list of bad ideas. I mean, the waste exists. We have to deal with it. We worked into, and I was at the table during the hammering out of the Statement of Principles for Safeguarding Nuclear Waste at Reactors, which you know, is the embodiment of hardened on-site storage as an idea. And uh, we built in uh, safeguards. You know, we said that there are places in the country where hardened on-site storage is not appropriate. In fact, it was never appropriate to build atomic reactors at Prairie Island, Minnesota, in the middle of the Mississippi River to begin with. But they have many hundreds of tons of radioactive waste there. So what to do? So there are places where it probably does need to move but it doesn't need to move all the way across the country to an Indian reservation. It may need to move a short distance inland away from the sea coasts. It may need to move some distance uh, in elevation to get away from floodplains. Those are the kind of things. And then hardening of storage can take place at those nearby locations. There's also been a consensus in the environmental movement that these wastes uh, should be kept as close to the point of generation as possible, as safely as possible. That's another consensus opinion. One of the things that's shown up here in Southern California is the discovery that the fuel that was being used at San Onofre is referred to as high burn-up fuel, which apparently puts it in a different category from the normal fuel in that it's hotter and it takes longer to cool down. What different provisions would have to be made for the high burn-up fuel? Well, yes, uh, low burn-up fuel is pretty nasty stuff too, but high burn-up fuel is even nastier. And one complication is that high burn-up is going to require many years longer in the storage pools. So there's no way to get around it, but 
Even low burn-up fuel has to spend five years cooling and radioactively decaying in a indoor wet storage pool. High burn-up fuel, I've heard figures as high as 20 years of pool storage, which the pools are ultra-high risk. If you lose the cooling water, you're going to have a uh, monumental catastrophe that would dwarf even something like Fukushima in terms of radioactivity releases. So it's longer in the pool. Complications with the dry cask storage because the heat levels are higher, and certainly transportation is much more risky with high burn-up. It's low burn-up on steroids is what it is. It's just worse. How in the world, if you have any theory at all on this, how was it allowed that such a dangerous technology was unleashed when it was known that it created waste and we had no way of dealing with the waste? It's been uh, likened to building a big apartment building but not having any toilets. Did they think they had ways of dealing with it or was this coming from arrogance? That's a good word for it. I've actually heard people respond to the NRC's nuclear waste confidence as calling it nuclear waste arrogance. And that arrogance goes all the way back to the beginning. There was always this attitude that, you know, the excitement was in the bomb or the excitement was in the reactor. It certainly was not very sexy to have to work on solving the waste problem on either side of the nuclear coin. And so that can keeps getting kicked down the road with a tremendous technological hubris and arrogance that, oh, it, the solution's just around the corner. Just give us another billion or 10 billion or 100 billion dollars and we'll figure it out for you, society. So yeah, it's been a huge moneymaker. That's one impetus, one motivation for the nuclear industry. But also, you know, it was the ticket for the United States to superpower status with the bomb. And so there's a lot of decision makers at very high levels and, you know, right on down the totem pole who just say, you know, no questions asked. Nuclear is good. It's good for my career. It's good for my pocketbook. All systems go. And uh, the radioactive waste dilemma is going to be a curse on all future generations. I mean, the electricity from reactors is but a fleeting byproduct. The actual product is forever deadly radioactive waste. I've heard it said by some that it's almost that the electricity, as you said, is a byproduct from the manufacturing process for weapons-grade plutonium. Well, they pretend in the U.S. nuclear establishment that there's a separation between uh, atoms for peace and atoms for war, but there are certainly a lot of exceptions to that rule. So present day, for example, the hydrogen for hydrogen bombs in the U.S. nuclear arsenal is being generated at a commercial reactor in Tennessee. So that's a big problem. And then going in the other direction, you've got weapons-grade plutonium, access to military needs, as they say. They're trying to turn that into uh, reactor fuel for commercial nuclear reactors in this country. So you've got atoms for peace and atoms for war just blending together. And certainly the situation in Iran makes that very stark right now. The Iranian regime has maintained for years that its uranium enrichment, even its uh, plutonium production, would be for peaceful electricity generation, as they put it, whereas, you know, Israel, for one, says that's not the case and is ready to perhaps go to war over this question. And it gets right to the heart of the matter that anywhere that nuclear power technology goes, weapons technology is a short half step behind. You can divert uranium enrichment or plutonium reprocessing into weapons use if you so choose. That stands for every country, though. Of course, Israel has nuclear weapons. 
There are countries that seem to get away with things like, for example, Brazil has uranium enrichment. There's no talk of bombing Brazil, but Iran is developing uranium enrichment and is being threatened with war by certain countries in the world. It just shows that nuclear power technology itself is very dangerous just in terms of nuclear weapons proliferation risks. Going back to the Senate Mobile Chernobyl Bill, which I don't believe that's what it's called officially. Yeah, the official title that they've given it is the Nuclear Waste Administration Act of 2013, or Senate Bill 1240. But we refer to it as the Mobile Chernobyl Bill or the Parking Lot Dump Bill. Where is it right now? And is there anything we, as the listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat, can do to perhaps influence where this is going? Yeah, well, just a few days ago, on November 21st, the sponsors, Wyden and Murkowski in Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, the chairman and the ranking Republican, said that they will take up the bill in a committee meeting, committee hearing uh, next month. And so it's going to be a committee vote on this bill as early as next month. So we have a short period of time to try to influence that committee vote. It's uh, Senate Energy and Natural Resources, uh, chaired by Wyden, the Oregon Democrat, and the ranking Republican is Murkowski from Alaska. But two other co-authors of this bill are Diane Feinstein of California and uh, Senator Alexander of Tennessee. So it is a uh, bipartisan bill, I guess you could say. Folks can influence this committee vote by contacting their members of the Senate especially if they're on the committee. But if they're not on the committee, they need to start leaning on their Senate colleagues on this issue. Uh, folks who are in Oregon, Alaska, California, Tennessee, can really make a difference by contacting the four senators I've mentioned, Wyden from Oregon, Murkowski from Alaska, Feinstein from California, Alexander from Tennessee. But it's going to take a lot more than that because these four have indicated that they think it's just a great idea what they're up to. And I guess the good news is we've We've influenced these bills in the past. In fact, we've been fighting mobile Chernobyl bills for the past 20, 25 years in the United States. And it's been a tremendous grassroots victory to have stopped them time and time again. Kevin, can you think of some other angles we can take on this to flesh out the picture, perhaps give you a platform for talking about some of the things you would like to? There's so much going on in the nuclear waste issue in the United States right now. You've got the uh, NRC nuclear waste confidence hearings. Uh, there's still a few more of those coming up with a big deadline on December 20th. I always try and tell people to put quotes around confidence because just speaking in terms of English, the word confidence to subliminal manipulation to convince us that we're dealing with this with confidence when I, for one, have no confidence in what the NRC is doing or anything that they are proposing. Well, you're right. It's a con game. It's a confidence game. It's a con job. It's a con. I mean, it's been used for decades since 1984 to justify and uh, provide a blank check to the nuclear industry to make as much high-level radioactive waste as they want to. So it was a tremendous court victory by a coalition of states and, and environmental groups last year that forced the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to undertake an environmental impact statement on the generation of high-level radioactive waste in the first place. So you're right. I mean, the public should have no confidence whatsoever in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission or the nuclear industry to safeguard and uh, to store this waste at the reactor sites or to move it anywhere or to store it away from reactor or to, as they say, dispose of it, which, again, is a misnomer. This waste is going to be deadly for a million years into the future. That's an underestimate. 
So that's the whole problem is any surface storage is going to turn to dust and blow away and this radioactive waste will still be there ready to erode into the environment. And even if buried in so-called deep geologic disposal sites, uh, take Yucca Mountain, for example, that's now canceled, that also was going to leak massively if it ever opened. So this is a real dilemma that we've created for ourselves here. I remember the old story of John Lilly, who was the uh, dolphin researcher, saying that the only thing that we could do with the waste that was ethical was put it on spaceships and shoot it into the sun, which, of course, is an ongoing nuclear reaction, and that's how we get our radiant heat and energy and all the like. The problem being that it was going to require at least 10,000 rockets to fire the waste up there, and it's more since then. Even in terms of science fiction thinking, is there anything you can imagine that would either allow us to neutralize this waste or do something with it that would shield life from being harmed by it? No, there's no simple answers. Uh, of course, the uh, ejection into space is really a non-starter. First, for cost reasons, it would just be astronomically expensive, pardon the pun, to try to do that. But... The space shuttle Challenger disaster really put an end to any such talk because if one of these ejections into space were to go wrong, were to blow up on liftoff, were to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, it would be an unprecedented and unrecoverable global catastrophe if that were to happen. So then there's also the Native American point that it's space is not there for us to trash either. So what can be done? I guess, you know, another bad idea to be on the lookout for is reprocessing. And I mentioned Savannah Riverside, South Carolina, as one of the top targets for consolidated interim storage. If Savannah Riverside and its booster groups down there were to get a hold of the high-level radioactive waste of the country, they are licking their chops to reprocess it, which means extract the plutonium supposedly for reuse. In fact, as we speak, uh, separately, apart from any of this uh, Senate bill legislation, there are efforts by Savannah Riverside and the U.S. Department of Energy that runs it to import high-level radioactive wastes from foreign countries like Canada, Germany, the United Kingdom. And each time they import wastes, they get paid a pretty penny for doing so. And what they're trying to do is to keep their reprocessing facilities open and on life support because they've been largely defunded since the end of the Cold War and the end of separating plutonium for nuclear weapons use. So they're doing everything they can. They're desperate. They're pushing hard to try to get all of the waste in one place. And you've got foreign companies like Arriva of France, which actually is the French government, and also Energy Solutions of Utah, which uh, gobbled up the uh, British reprocessing firm, British Nuclear Fuels Limited. Those are the competitors trying to get a hold of U.S. high-level radioactive waste to get the plutonium out. It's such a bad idea from nuclear weapons proliferation risks to the environmental catastrophe. It is environmentally ruinous wherever it's carried out, and it's also a huge nuclear weapons proliferation risk. You know, we really owe a debt of gratitude to the Carter administration, which ended reprocessing in the United States because it sent a signal to other countries in the world that it's not proper to do. And countries like Argentina and Brazil, which were military dictatorships in the 70s, they stopped uh, Taiwan, which was on the brink of war with China. It stopped South Korea on the brink of war with North Korea. It stopped. Or those those countries could be uh, nuclear weapons powers at this time if they had continued to reprocess. So here we have really domestic enemies, I guess you could say, of the United States who think that we should reprocess and just open up that whole 
Pandora's box of uh, weapons proliferation risks and environmental ruination. So that's yet another risk we have to watch out for with radioactive waste. The cost of this is the ability to survive as a species and as a life form on this planet, given the intensity and the ever-increasing intensity of radioactive waste that is out there. Throw a lifeline on this. Is there any ray of hope, or is it just a matter of fight the good fight for as long as we can and know that at least we've done everything we can? Well, I think there is hope. Uh, we have stopped these mobile Chernobyl bills for 20 years and longer. We've stopped reprocessing from resuming for 40 years in this country. So uh, what would really be great is if folks could contact their members of Congress, both of their U.S. senators and their U.S. representative, and that cost question that you raised, that would be a whole other reason to put out there to the members of Congress is our country's in economic crisis, and yet this Senate bill would really open the purse strings on the U.S. Treasury. We shouldn't be subsidizing the nuclear power industry to take care of its radioactive waste problem. And despite that, the courts have just allowed the Department of Energy, in fact, they've ordered the Department of Energy to stop collecting the nuclear waste fund fee from utilities. So that means that now uh, taxpayers get to hold the bag for radioactive waste management for all waste that's made from now on. That is passed already? Well, the courts ruled about a week ago in uh, mid-November, and they told the Department of Energy that if you do not have a deep geologic repository, then you cannot continue collecting this nuclear waste fee from nuclear ratepayers across the country. What that means is that the uh, nuclear industry is scot-free. They really celebrated the court ruling. It means that $30 billion has been collected from the uh, users of nuclear electricity. And so that's all there is. There will be no more collected. You know, the Yucca Mountain price tag before the project was canceled was $100 billion. That meant $70 billion was going to be collected from taxpayers to make up for the shortfall. So the taxpayers are going to be looked to to pay the costs of nuclear waste storage from now until the end of time. So we have to stop the making of it. Another source of hope is that for the first time in 15 years, there have been five reactor shutdowns in the United States in the past year. You've got San Onofre 2 and 3 in California, Crystal River, Florida, Vermont Yankee, Kewanee in Wisconsin. So that is the solution to the radioactive waste problem, is to stop making it. And also, when the reactors close, there are no more, no more reactor risks like we saw at Fukushima Daiichi. So we have a 100 more reactors to go in the United States, and then the reactor risks are gone, the radioactive waste generation stops, but we'll still have to deal with what they've made already. And undoubtedly, you're going to be on the front lines of fighting this for as long as you can. Yeah, uh, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I'll keep on fighting. <laughs> you were actually one of my first interviews on Nuclear Hot Seat, and you gave me my initial grounding in what nuclear waste was and why it was the problem and why it wasn't going away. I remember you back then saying something about the need for the equivalent of a nuclear priesthood, given the responsibility through the generations to caretake this horrible waste that we have created in the last 70 years. Yeah, it's really an idea that Joanna Macy in Berkeley, California came up with. It's called the Nuclear Guardianship Project, and it's a recognition that culturally, institutionally, each generation of humankind is now going to have to pass on the knowledge of how to keep this waste isolated from the living environment until the end of time. 
Some of the constituents are deadly for more than a million years, far longer. So we certainly can't depend on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission or the Department of Energy or the EPA or the nuclear industry to do that job. And in fact, even now, uh, we are the institutional memory. We are the wisdom being brought to these questions at these nuclear waste con game hearings across the country. So we're just going to have to keep that up, not just uh, in our own lives, but for future generations to come. Any final thought you'd like to leave us with? Well, one issue we didn't touch on is the fact that the courts have also, in addition to requiring NRC to undertake an environmental impact statement on high-level radioactive waste generation and storage and disposal, they've unfortunately also ordered the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to at least partially resume the Yucca Mountain licensing proceeding, at least until the related monies are gone. And so the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, just in the middle of November, has ordered its staff to finish the safety evaluation report on the Yucca Mountain dump. And the good news, the silver lining, is that that one action is going to get rid of the rest of the money at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And hopefully that'll be the end of it, because Senator Reid from Nevada, President Obama, are not going to allow any more funding to flow to the Yucca Mountain project. So hopefully, despite that bad court ruling, the money is gone and... uh We may have to worry about it, though, when there could be a Republican in the White House or a Republican Senate, because the Republican Party and way too many Democrats are still gunning for Nevada to dump the radioactive waste on western Shoshone land. We will not lack for important and very challenging things to do with our time and our energy and our intellect in the foreseeable future, will we? It's a really good fight, so I encourage folks to jump in it. It's one of the most important fights in the world. Kevin Camps, thank you so much for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. You can contact Kevin Camps and read a whole bunch of really terrific, clear reports at beyondnuclear.org. We'll have Radcast and the Radiation Awareness Tip in just a moment. But first, it's the holidays. Need I remind you? Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support. You can go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, and on the homepage, look for the big red donate button. Give a little, give a lot, whatever you can do to help. Many thanks. Here's the radiation weather report from Radcast. This is Mimi German for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. Today is Tuesday, December 3rd, 2013. Remember, the RADCAST alert is set at 100 CPM. We are seeing elevated readings today across the United States. We're seeing numbers in Washington State in the upper 20s to low 30 CPM, with Seattle at 32 CPM and Tenino, Washington at 38. In North Portland, it is 31 CPM with highs of 65, and on the East Coast in Seaside, it is 30 CPM. In Colorado Springs, we're seeing readings of 61 and further to eastern Colorado, 71 counts per minute. South Dakota is reading in the low 50s. In Farmington, Minnesota, we're seeing counts of 41 CPM spiking at 66, and in Frederick, Wisconsin, 57 CPM. The southeast is reading near Raleigh, North Carolina in the low 40s and Alabama and Georgia in the mid to upper 30s. Charleston, West Virginia is in the mid 40s at 46 CPM and Fredericksburg, Virginia is at 39 CPM, slightly elevated for Virginia. 
Massachusetts and Pennsylvania are always slightly elevated from the rest of the United States due to their nuclear plants, with readings of 49 CPM in Philadelphia and 43 in Chicopee, Mass. Thank you for listening to the Radcast Report on the Nuclear Hot Seat. This is Mimi Gurman for Radcast.org. Thank you, Mimi Gurman and all the reporters for Radcast. Here's some activist shout-outs. Gail Payne! That was one heck of a graphic image you created of the one-eyed Fukushima baby, along with the message, Fukushima is here. You know, we need more branding work like this, something that conveys our fears and concerns in a way that doesn't have people screaming and running away from us. A reminder that if you follow the URL on that button to fukushimaishere.org, It will then allow you to connect to the petition put forth by the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network demanding a drop in allowable radiation levels for food here in the United States. If you haven't signed yet, do so now. And here's a shout-out to Japanese graffiti artist 281 Antinuke. He's often been called the Japanese Banksy, and his images criticize the lack of preparedness and slow cleanup of the nuclear disaster in Fukushima. He often refers to it as the third bomb and redesigned the TEPCO logo as a skull and crossbones. His best-known image, a little girl in a raincoat shielding herself from a radioactive downpour. 281 Anti-Nuke, if you ever want to do an interview, just Skype me, instant message me on Facebook, or send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. John Stewart, call me. And the final thought for today, I've been thinking too much. You're off the hook. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 3rd, 2013. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, fukushimadiary.com, and our friend Iori Mochizuki, Manichi, Bologna, Japan-based investigative journalist Jake Edelstein, Asahi Shimbun, NHK, Wall Street Journal's Japan Real-Time blog, Arurang News, GG Press, Associated Press, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds.org, Informable.com and Lucas Hickson, Bloomberg News, Korea Times, JapanTimes.com, AFP, Reuters UK, TheHindu.com, NuclearNews.net, LiveFreeLiveNatural.com, King 5 News in Seattle, The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, TEPCO, TheDiplomat.com, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, which you are all invited to join. Theme music, written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Looks like Weber, sounds like Weaver. I've finally settled on the title of my book, I Glow in the Dark, a very personal nuclear reaction from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and beyond. It will be coming out before the end of the year in EPUB version, so keep listening to the podcast because you will be the first to know when it is available. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. Comment on our website, comment at Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook, knock yourselves out. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, a suggestion of someone to interview, or a lead to John Stewart, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You've got my permission to reuse any of this, as long as you give proper attribution, website, and email. 
This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear- 